If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you're new to the Bible or don't own a Bible, please let us know. We'd love to give you a Bible or, or tell you about where to purchase one. Um, we're going to put the verses on the screen if, if you didn't bring it with you today. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 in, in John chapter 14. And let me catch you up if you haven't been here with us. Jesus is, he's eating his last supper that uh, he'll ever eat. He's with his 12 disciples in Jerusalem. They're celebrating the Passover together in this small upper room. And, and he's given them some really important instructions that he wants them to know because they're his followers. They're going to be the leaders of the church. And, and uh, he kind of gives them a, a mission here. And he tells the disciples that he wants them to serve one another the way that he has served them. He's just finished washing their feet. He's going to go to the cross. And he wants them to serve one another the same way that he has served them by laying down their lives for one another. And he also says that uh, he wants them to love one another the same way that he has loved them. He says that this is how people will be able to tell if you're a Christian, by the way that you love one another. And Jesus says that, that doing this, the loving one another, truly, uh, it means that we love one another the same way that he has loved us. And so... He claims that loving one another doesn't mean whatever you and I want it to mean. Okay? He claims to be the definition of love. And so if a definition of love does not align with Jesus and the word that he's revealed, then it's not love. Loving one another means treating one another the exact same way that Jesus has treated us. So it's really important to Jesus that the disciples understand this because they're the first Christian leaders of the church. They should be modeling for all of the other Christians how to treat one another. But unfortunately, the disciples, uh, they don't really appear to be super interested in this topic right now. Uh, they're more concerned with something else Jesus said, that he's leaving them. And uh, their attitude is kind of, you're leaving us, Jesus. What are you talking about? We need you here. You're our leader. Where are you going? Why can't we follow you where you're going? I'm sure we can work something out here. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll go wherever you go. We'll die for you. We'll follow you wherever. Well, Jesus is, is going to leave the disciples, and he's going to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And, and that is one place that the disciples can't go. And as time will tell, that's a place that the disciples really don't want to go right now. The disciples can't go to the cross to do what Jesus is going to do because only Jesus is God. Only Jesus can take away the barrier of sin that separates us from him. And so only Jesus can die on the cross as our substitute to bring us to God. After he dies, Jesus will be buried in the ground for three days and then he would rise from the dead he would be resurrected. He would then hang out on earth for about 40 days as more verification that he really uh, raised again physically. He would appear to people in his physical body. He would have conversations with them in public and in private and small groups and in big groups. He would let them touch him and feel him and that he would eat dinners with people and breakfast. And, and after that, he, uh, in the presence of many witnesses, he ascended physically back into heaven and it says in Acts that he ascended into up into the sky, up into the clouds and he is now at the right hand of God the Father where he rules over 
everything in the known and unknown universe. He sits in glory as the lion and the lamb. And this work of atonement that he has done for our sin is not something that you and I could accomplish or that the disciples could accomplish. Only God, Jesus Christ, could accomplish this for us. And praise God, he was gracious and merciful and compassionate enough to want to do that for us. Now the disciples, sorry, the disciples will soon show, uh, I don't think I'm doing anything. I'll get this, I'll get this ready in case we have to switch, okay? The disciples will soon show uh, that as much as they say that they're gonna do anything for Jesus, they're gonna go anywhere for Jesus, they don't really mean it, okay? They, they have empty promises to Jesus. In fact, he tells them that within the next 12 hours, they're all gonna leave him, okay? He says, you guys are gonna scatter, and one of you guys are gonna betray me, uh, and one of you are gonna deny that uh, you even know me, and you're gonna do that three times. Can you turn this one on? Just so I got it, in case we need it. Okay. Um, so am I good? Can you hear me? Okay. <clears throat> Let's, okay, so let me just do a side note real quick. The disciples' empty promises and cowardly behavior and their inability to understand much of what Jesus says is a great proof that the New Testament is true. Okay? Because who wrote much of the New Testament? The disciples. So if they were just making all this stuff up, then why in the world would they portray themselves as so cowardly and idiotic? Right? The reason why they share these embarrassing details about themselves is because they're not making it up. They're just sharing what happened. The Bible is historically true. We can trust the authors of Scripture because God guided them as they wrote these accounts. And they're scared. The disciples are scared that Jesus is going to leave them, and, and they don't understand what he's doing. And so that's what we're going to pick up here in John 14, verses 1 through 11. Let's ask for God to bless us and help us as we open his word. Dear Lord, we do thank you for giving us your word. Please help us not to take it for granted that we have the Bible in our language. This was bought with blood, God. Many people died to translate this into our native tongue so that we could know you and learn about you, Jesus. And thank you that uh, we can trust this word because you tell us it's been breathed out by you. And so, Lord, as we do that, help us just to be humble today and admit that we are no better than these 12 disciples. Um, you have been so good and faithful to us, even though we haven't been good and faithful to you. Uh, we confess that we don't love you the way we should love you. We don't obey you the way we should obey you. We don't bring you all the glory in our lives that you deserve. And we ask that today would be one step in which we would do that better by the power of your Holy Spirit. Please change us. You tell us we need to be taught by the Holy Spirit. Please use the scripture to change us. For those who are spiritually blind, use your gospel to take the blinders off their eyes of, the, of their hearts in power, Lord. Give us power and um, help us to concentrate on your word. Please protect us from the evil of our flesh now. Protect us from the evil of Satan and his demons, please protect the kids next door and all the volunteers helping out. We need your help, Jesus. We cannot get anything out of this text without you. 
We pray this in your name, amen. All right, John 14, uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take it a few verses at a time. So let's start at verse one. Jesus tells the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So by saying believe in God, believe also in me, he's not saying, well, there's God and then there's me. Okay. All throughout the Gospel of John, he says, he's talking about God the Father. Believe in God the Father, believe also in me. Jesus, the Word, was with God, and he was God. Okay. Now, isn't it remarkable when you read this? You think about, put yourself in the, this room here. You think about what's really going on here. It's remarkable that even though Jesus is the one about to be arrested, about to be beaten, about to be flogged, about to be hung on a cross, even though he is the one actually who ought to be comforted, he is instead the one comforting the disciples about their fears. <laughs> and he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. It's kind of a funny thing to say because Jesus makes it sound like they have some control over how troubled they're gonna be. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, you guys, I'm sorry that your hearts are gonna be troubled about this. No, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled by this. So that means that the disciples had some control over how much they worried about Jesus leaving them. And uh, it's the same way with you and me. We have some control about how much we worry about scary situations in our lives. Whether we're worried about, you know, things maybe similar to the disciples here, whether we're worried that, am I truly a Christian? Am I really going to heaven? Or maybe we're worried about a million other things that can tempt us to worry in this world, what Jesus says is that instead of passively allowing troubling thoughts to bombard your heart and conquer your heart, you should instead be on the lookout for those thoughts, you should stand firm against those lies and scary thoughts, and you should actively fight those worries that are troubling or seeking to trouble your heart. And then Jesus tells them how to do that. He tells us to believe in God the Father and also to believe in him. And the word believe here can also be translated from the Greek as trust. So Jesus is saying that instead of allowing ourselves to be run over by worries, we should instead fight those worries by trusting in God the Father and by trusting in Jesus. So he's saying you're either going to believe your worries or you're going to believe Jesus, but you can't believe both. So what's it going to be? It's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Um, but this is why we have to understand um, that much of our spiritual lives is a battle to trust Jesus. Okay? This is the language of the New Testament. Paul talks about fight the good fight. Not talking about fighting people. Talking about fighting against sin, fighting against lies, fighting against spiritual forces that want to take us out. We fight by the power of Jesus. It's a battle to be on the lookout for lies and fears. It's a battle to, to identify. That's, that's not from God, that thought that is coming to me. It's, it's a battle to replace our worry with trust in Jesus and trusting that he's in control and that he's going to take care of us. 
As a Christian who has experienced long periods of irrational anxiety and depression for more than 15 years, I can attest that not all anxiety, not all fear is only because you don't trust Jesus enough. Okay? There is a part of the human population that has a legitimate biochemical imbalance that creates irrational heightened states of anxiety. And some of them need medicine just to feel normal, just to be on a plateau that feels somewhat normal. Now, that being said, whether a person takes medicine or not for irrational heightened anxiety that will not go away, Jesus' word still stands true. Get this? Our answer is not in our medicine. That's not where the hope is. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in God the Father who loves us and who made us in his image. Our hope is in Jesus the Son who died for us and who's interceding for us. Our hope is in the Holy Spirit who comforts us and he empowers us to fight the good fight. What this means though is for you and me is we can't be passive in this battle. We can't be passive, oh, worries and doubts, I can't do it. I just, Paul says, put on your armor. Fight the good fight. God's given you the tools. Christians, you gotta fight. We've gotta take those thoughts captive. We have to fight them with the truth of God's word. We've got to fight to trust God. And it's hard. Listen to this great quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones in a sermon that he gave on Psalm 42. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this, he says. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? His soul had been uh, repressing him, crushing him. And so he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Lloyd-Jones says, do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down, soul? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, say to yourself, hope in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil, and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Is that great? The way that we do not let our hearts be troubled by f- is by fighting our worries with faith in Jesus and in his gospel and in his promises. 
And now Jesus gives his disciples more reasons why they shouldn't be worried because he's leaving them in order to do some awesome things for them. Look at verse two. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So we don't have to obsessively worry about the trials in our lives and about the brokenness in this world. We don't have to obsessively worry about it because this life on earth, Jesus says, is not the end for us, okay? Jesus teaches that we are on earth only actually for a very short time in light of eternity. And then when, when we die, if we've trusted in him, if we've trusted in this gospel during our lives on earth, we'll be with God forever. And so don't reject him because you won't be with God forever if you reject him. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says that this earth, this place, is not our home. So don't get too comfortable here because you're not going to be here long. He says that God the Father's house in heaven has many rooms and that that's where your true home is. It's the home that you were created for. It's a home that you haven't been to yet. And if you trust in Jesus, then you will be home in heaven someday, and it will feel more like home than any place you've ever been before. Jesus tells the disciples that he's leaving them in order to go prepare this place for them in heaven. And I've never really understood what that means. Um, that Jesus is preparing a place for us. Is Jesus up there, I mean, is he up there in heaven vacuuming the floors of our rooms and getting ready? Is he fluffing the pillows for us? What's going on right now to prepare a place for us? I, I don't think that's what that means, but I read some helpful thoughts on this this week by D.A. Carson and also by um, J.C. Ryle. And Carson points out the fact that in Matthew 25, one of the other gospels, Jesus has already told the disciples that God's kingdom has been prepared for them since the foundation of the world. And so what's Jesus doing to prepare heaven for us now? Well, it's possible Jesus is preparing a specific place, kind of catered for us, but, but I think Jesus' message, his bigger message here, here is that he would prepare a place in heaven for us by going to the cross for us, by rising again for us, by ascending back to heaven in order to claim heaven for us, okay? This is an awesome quote by J.C. Riley. You gotta hear this. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people, a place which we shall find Christ himself has made ready for true Christians. He's prepared it by procuring a right for every sinner who believes to enter in. None can stop us and say we have no business there. He has prepared it by going before us as our head and our representative and taking possession of all of it for all the members of his mystical body. As our forerunner, he has marched in, leaving captivity captive, and he has planted his banner in the land of glory. He's prepared it by carrying our names with him as our high priest into the Holy of Holies and making angels ready to receive us, they that enter heaven will find they are neither unknown nor unexpected. <laughs> That's awesome. Jesus is waiting in heaven for us. 
He's already driven his banner in the ground of heaven and said, heaven belongs to all who belong to me. That's awesome. In verse two, Jesus essentially tells the disciples, I wouldn't have told you this if it weren't true. This is not a fairy tale. I'm God, I'm real. Heaven is a real place I created and I'm going there to prepare it for you. Wow. Now let's pause for a minute and just consider how this house, our father's giant house, should shape our church culture at Cedarham and how it should shape our own individual lives, okay? First, Jesus says there are uh, many rooms for his people in heaven. In other words, he's saying, I have plenty of room there for my children, okay? My father's house is not like any house you've ever seen before. It's not like any house you've ever been to before. So make room for many people in your church family on earth too, okay? Make room in your church for people who don't believe in Jesus yet. Make room in your church for Christians who are making Cedar Home their new church home. Jesus tells us there's plenty of room for God's children in heaven, and I want your church, Cedar Home, to be a reflection of heaven on earth in Stanwood. Okay? Always make room for more in your church family. Always make room for more in your life. Don't say, I've got my six friends, I met my quota. I don't need anybody else. We're on mission here. This isn't about us. There isn't a quota we meet. We always make room for more. Always make room for more people around your dinner table, around your Thanksgiving table, around your Christmas table. Yeah, we have traditions and they mean a lot to us, but may your traditions not be an idol that you worship so much that you're unwilling to show Christian hospitality to others because it would be inconvenient to you. Jesus tells us there's plenty of room for God's children in heaven, and I want your church to be a reflection of that. Long before I was ever at Cedar Home, and I've been here, I'm going into my 10th year, God gave the people of this church a vision to build this worship center so that this church could make more room for more people who are seeking the Lord. And now we're in this incredible building And it is now time to live out the purpose of this building, okay? To welcome people into our rows. To think about these empty seats around us. Who are my neighbors and friends that I would love to see sitting in those seats? To uh, walk around during church and after church to get to know people we don't know. To serve one another, to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now as a side note, there's another side note. We have in this room... Um, room for several hundred more people. You probably won't have your, your Boeing business class right now that you do if, uh, right now if, if we add more people. But uh, our biggest issue right now is we don't have a lot of parking, which is a good problem to have. And so this fall, um, if you're a leader or a regular attender here, I would just encourage you to carpool with people or drive in one car with your family or park on the north side of the old buildings because what we want is for guests to get the best spot. That's what we want. We want to serve one another. Let other people have the best spot. There's plenty of parking spots in heaven, but that is something we're still working on at Cedar Home. Um, Jesus says we shouldn't let our hearts be troubled because we can trust him. And we can trust God the Father who sent him. 
And Jesus has gone to prepare our home for us in heaven. And also, he says this, I'm going to make sure you get there. Verse 3, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus says that we can trust him when he says that heaven is real. We can trust him when he says that he goes to prepare a place for us there. We can trust him that he will come back to earth someday and take us to himself. Um, In several other books of the Bible, Jesus promises that he will return to earth someday. We sang about it this morning. He says that he's going to return with trumpet sounds and and it's going to be incredible and he's going to gather every person who's ever lived and everybody will see him in his power and resurrection glory and every person will stand accountable to God for the lives we've lived on earth and we will either say, Lord, I've trusted in you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other. Or we'll say, Lord, I think I've been a good enough person. Please let me in, but I never wanted you on earth. I'm sorry. Is it too late now? In in Jesus' words, he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. You can read more details about what Jesus says that will be like in Matthew 24 and 25. The point here is that Jesus promises not to go to heaven and to leave us behind. Jesus is in heaven, but he, he has not abandoned us. He's in heaven right now, but he's not forgotten about us. He says that he will bring every Christian to him in heaven in one of two ways. Either you're going to die on earth while Jesus is still in heaven, and he will immediately bring your soul to him in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ for the Christian. Or Jesus will return to earth while you are still living on earth, and he will bring you to himself to be with him for eternity. So however it plays out for you and me, Jesus promises us this, that this life on earth is very, uh, it's uh, temporary. It's a temporary part of our existence, and we can have this eternal life. We can have assurance of this life with God right now if we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus instead through faith. Now, Jesus then says a curious thing here, okay? Verse 4, he says, And I like that word curious because we don't use that much in American English. It's a British English word, and I like it. But it's a curious thing. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. He tells the disciples they already know the way to where he's going. And if that's the case, then the disciples must know the way to get to heaven. And if they already know the way to get to heaven, then why don't they just follow Jesus there? Why would Jesus need to come back and get them if they know the way? Well, like we said a minute ago, there are going to be a lot of Christians who die physically before Jesus comes back to earth. And that would include all of the 12 disciples. It would include every Christian who has lived until now. It includes your loved ones in Christ. Because Jesus has not yet returned physically to earth again. But that doesn't mean the Christians who have already died are not with Jesus right now in heaven. On the contrary, Jesus has already told us the way. This is what he's saying. I've already told you the way to me. And he's going to tell us again in verse 6 in a minute. But I want us to hop back real quick and read verse 3 one more time, okay? He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 
So the last phrase of this sentence tells us that the reason Jesus prepares a place for us, the reason he's coming again, the reason he will take us to himself is so that we may be where God is forever. Okay? What does this mean about God? It means that Jesus wants us with him. He wants to be around us. He wants to be around you. He wants friendship with us. And this is one of the underlying messages of the entire Bible. That God the Father has sacrificed his own son Jesus on our behalf in order to remove the barrier that has separated us from God. God has sacrificed everything he has in order to give us the greatest joy, the greatest peace, the greatest eternity that human beings are capable of experiencing. And that's a relationship with God. In John 17, he's going to say, now this is eternal life, that they know God. <laughs> that they know God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life, to know God. And, and that relationship with Jesus starts the moment that we, he works in our heart, and we pray to him, and we say, God, I cannot do this on my own. And I don't have hope apart from you. Look at my track record. God, I've done a lot of rebellious things against you that I knew were wrong, and I confess those to you, and I need you, and I'm sorry for those things, and I don't want to do those things anymore, and I need you to save me. I need you to save me from this stuff. I need you to save me from my future. I need you to give me faith that you are real, God, and I'm just trusting in you. I'm trusting in you, God. When we do that, a miracle happens. We are seeking peace with God. Okay. We're understanding that we're not on good terms with God without Jesus. We, uh, we're seeking peace with God, which he has offered to us first in Christ. And when we do this, when we trust in Jesus, we can trust that he will do everything he's promised to do. If you're here today, trust Jesus. That's what he says in this passage. It's not my word, that's his word. Believe in Jesus. Trust him with your life. And follow him. It's going to be a devastating day someday when he looks at a massive crowd of humans and says, depart from me for I never knew you. Don't be one of those. Listen to him. Heed his word now and trust in him. Do that right now or do it after the service as God leads you. I'm not going to manipulate you to do that. If you believe this, if you know that you need help, then get right with the Lord. You do not need me to be your priest. Jesus is the priest. I'll help you. I'll pray for it with you if that would help. But go to Jesus. He loves you. And he, he offers you peace right now. Jesus tells the disciples, you know the way to where I'm going. And, and in verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So again, the disciples are not getting it. Remember, this is after about three years of living with Jesus and learning from Jesus. And Thomas essentially tells Jesus, no, we don't know the way to where you're going, Lord. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going if we don't even know where you're going? And where is your father's house? You can't be talking about your dad, Joseph. Okay, 
Your dad was a carpenter. You grew up in Nazareth. We've been there. I've seen that town. There's no way we're going to fit into one of those houses. Okay? So seriously, Lord, where are you going and how do we get there? And in verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I was having coffee with a non-Christian friend a while back, and he told me how much this verse bugged him. Because here, Jesus says that only through him can any person be with God now and after life on earth. It's very clear. It's a very clear statement. And as an intelligent thinking person, he had dozens of reasons why Jesus' words can't be true here if God is truly a loving God. And it's good to think about these questions. It is good. What about um, all the billions of people in the world who practice other religions? What about all the people in the world who've never even heard, had the chance to hear about Jesus? What about all the really kind, moral people? I don't know about you, but I know a lot of really great people who are not Christians. What happens to them? What if the Bible's been corrupted or mistranslated? Maybe this was added to the Bible several centuries after it was originally written. So my friend had all sorts of good reasons why Jesus' words couldn't be true here. And, and some of those are hard questions that only God knows. Some of those, though, are questions that if we do the hard work of study and research, we'll find there's a massive amount of biblical and historical trustworthy evidence. But by God's grace, he led me to say something that wasn't of me, because I probably would have taken the bait and tackled all those questions. But instead, I simply said, yeah, but what if Jesus really is the only way to heaven and he loves you enough to tell you the truth? And my non-Christian friend simply said, that's a good point. <laughs> At the end of the day, just because we don't like the truth doesn't mean it's the truth. It's not true. In fact, Jesus, if he really did not love us, they, he wouldn't have said what he says in verse 6. He would have said, oh, all roads go to heaven. Be a good person. You'll be okay. That's bogus. That's mean. That's a horrific thing to tell a person a lie like that when their eternity rests on it. If Jesus didn't really love us, he wouldn't have come to earth and died and risen again for our sake when he had nothing to gain. He had nothing to gain. Yeah, when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, it is a hard pill to swallow for our postmodern world. But it doesn't mean it's not true. And it doesn't mean that God isn't loving. In fact, it means that God loves us enough to tell us the truth. He doesn't hide the truth. He reveals it. Jesus told Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And early in chapter 10, you'll remember Jesus, when he was going, when he said, I'm the good shepherd, he was, we were talking about shepherding. He said, I am the door, which essentially means the same thing. The only way to the God who really exists is through the God who really exists. Okay? Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the way to heaven, and he wants us there with him. And that's why he tells us over and over again to trust in him and to put our faith in him, because nothing we do can get us there. We must trust in what he has done for us. 
That's what gets us there. The faith that he gives us and the faith we express in Jesus. Jesus is the way to heaven. And Jesus tells us that he is the truth. He says, you know what? You've wondered your whole life who made this planet that you're walking on and all those beautiful stars in the sky that you see. You've wondered your whole life why you're here, whether there's a God or not, who's in charge of all of this. And I'm telling you, I am the truth that you have been looking for. I don't lie. I am the truth. I am the answer you're looking for. And then Jesus tells us that he's the life. Zoe, life. The abundant life, the true life we were created to live. He is the life that we are looking for and dreaming of. And knowing Jesus is what will give us eternal flourishing and eternal peace and eternal life an eternal friendship with our maker that deep inside all of us want. Because that's what God created us to want. We were made in his image. He created us to want him. The reason we don't want him is because sin has warped us. It's warped our will. But Jesus is eternal life. And then Jesus says in verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So remember that John 1, 11 says that uh, when Jesus came to earth, he was rejected by his own people, the Jews, and also by humanity in general. But he's saying, had humanity seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, had we known him for who he really is, then we would have also known God the Father. So in other words, Everyone who does not believe that Jesus is God does not know, tr truly know God. That's what he's saying. Because there is no other God. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are one. And then Jesus makes an awesome claim at the end of verse 7. He says, from now on, you do know him. He's talking about God the Father. And you have seen him. Now, in our culture, that may not seem like a shocking statement. But in the first century uh, Jewish uh, culture, this would have been groundbreaking because when you read the Old Testament, which is scripture before Christ in the flesh on earth, you read that uh, nobody in their flesh knows God and sees God the Father in his totality. Okay? Even the angels we read about in Isaiah 6 who are awesome and glorious and incredible and scary and whenever they appear to people, they make them fall on their faces and they cry and that's why one of the first words the angels say is, don't be afraid. <laughs> okay? Even these angels can't even look at God the Father because it's like staring at the brightest star in the universe. And so the angels, it says, they have to cover their eyes and they have to cover their feet just to survive in his presence. And here Jesus tells the disciples that since they have known and seen Jesus, they also have known and have seen God the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And now, it's Philip's turn to look a little foolish. In verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Philip doesn't understand what Jesus is claiming. He wants Jesus to show them God the Father, probably how uh, Moses got to see God. 
Philip doesn't understand, though, that he has seen the Father already because he's seen Jesus. He doesn't understand that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is one with the Father and the Spirit. They're together God of the Old Testament and before. And so in verses 9 to 11, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So in verse 10, Jesus says, the Father dwells in me. That's amazing. The Father lives in me. And at the same time, Jesus dwells in the Father. Jesus lives in the Father. So the Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. And the more that we understand this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, the more it makes sense that there is no way to the Father except through Jesus. And Jesus says that all of his words, all of his works have been done by the authority and command of God the Father. And Jesus tells them that if they don't believe that Jesus is telling the truth, if you really don't believe what I'm telling you, then at least look at all of the signs and wonders that I've done and see how clearly they point out that I am God. What a gracious thing for Jesus to say. You know what? I love you, and I want to rescue you. I want to help you. I want to be with you. I want to save you from your sin. I want to save you from your brokenness in this life and after this life. I want to save you from hell so badly. I want you to believe me so badly that I'll tell you this. Even if you don't believe my words, believe the miracles. (laughs) Believe the signs. Just believe me. Because it's only through me that you will come to my Father's house. I don't know about you, but I'm real thankful God is so patient with us. Because we're not any smarter or more put together than these disciples. In fact, think about this. Unlike the disciples, we're living after their time. We're living after all of the events of Acts and the New Testaments, after 2,000 years of miracles and revivals, and we still say, Lord, just show me a sign and I'll believe in you. Jesus has already told us the truth. He's told us what we need to believe in order to be with him, in order to go to his father's house. He's already shown us that he is the way to eternal life. And so we should not entertain scary thoughts, he says, or allow our hearts to be troubled. Because he's already paid for our sins on the cross completely, and he's gone to heaven, and he's claimed it for us as our eternal home. So while you and I wait to see him face to face, as a church family, that is one expression of heaven on earth by God's grace. We want to live into that. We want to seek to be a God-glorifying group of people who puts away our infantile, sinful habits and instead a people that seeks to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. You are awesome. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And we celebrate that you have revealed that truth to us because you want to be with us, Jesus. We realize that it is an exclusivistic claim because you are claiming to be the only way to heaven. Yes, it is true. And at the same time, we thank you that you are inclusive in that this offer is open to people of all nations all around the globe and all throughout history. Lord, help us to be filled with you and your love. Give us what we need today and this week to be your light in our community and in our families. Work out your fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Help us to love. God, may, our, may your word just not depart from us now. May it seek into our hearts so that it shapes our conversations today and tonight and this week. We thank you, God, that we have the word, the, the Bible in our language so we can, we can read God, the gospel and the other gospels and the other New Testament writings in, in, in the Old Testament this week if we want to. That this isn't the only time we have to hear your revealed truth in Scripture Holy Spirit, please give us power this week. Please help us to persevere through whatever we're going through. We can do nothing without you, Jesus. Please open the eyes of the blind and please encourage those of us who you've saved already. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.